Hi, this is Hannah again, and I'm here to bring you another episode of Inside the Benton. This episode is a little bit different because it was completely produced by my fellow Pomona College studio art major, May G. What you're about to listen to is an interview with artist Alia Ali talk about Project Series 53, an exhibition now on view at the Benton Museum of Art at Pomona College, and will be up until May 16th, 2021. This show presents four bodies of recent work by Yemeni-Bosnian U.S. artist Alia Ali, as she explores themes of diaspora, migration, and identity through the lens of Afro and Yemeni futurism. Informed by the artist's own transnational and multilingual upbringing, these works use visual language, photography, textiles, video, and installations to create a new lexicon unfettered from the colonial violence inherent to language. This exhibition was curated by senior curator Rebecca McGrew and curator Hannah Grossman. I personally am really fond of Ollie's work and have had the privilege of having her visit a couple of my art classes on campus. And I'm excited to have the opportunity to share her work with you. Hi, I'm May, and I'll be your host for this episode of the Benton Museum's podcast series. Today, I'll be speaking with Project Series 53 artist, Alia Ali. In her own words, Alia is a Yemeni-Bosnian-US multimedia artist whose extensive travels have led her to process the world through interactive experiences and the belief that the interpretation of verbal and written language has disturbed particular communities and presents more of a threat than a means of understanding. Her aesthetic interests stem from people, place, and processes which unite and divide us all at once. Alia is the first project series artist to exhibit her work in the new space of the Pomona College Benton Museum of Art. The show is curated by senior curator Rebecca McGrew and is scheduled to open in the fall of 2020 and stay on view through the spring of 2021. So now I'm here with Alia Ali. Thank you so much, Alia, for being here and for taking the time to speak with us today. To start, could you please introduce yourself and this incredible new body of work that we'll be showing? Hi, May. Thank you so much for hosting this podcast. A little bit about myself. I am a Yemeni-Bosnian U.S. artist, multimedia artist that focuses mostly around photography and the narrative that photography and image produce that sometimes don't only translate into photography, but also into installation, video work, and even textile. I'm really excited about showing this new work at the Benton for the Project Series 53 that has been curated by Rebecca McGrew and who's been really instrumental in not only bringing this work to the Benton but also supporting me in making a lot of shifts in my practice, especially during these trying times during COVID and so on. And so I'm really excited to see how students from Pomona but also how the extended community relate and react to it. I'll be presenting in three different locations. One of them is the entrance to the museum, the lobby where I am presenting a wall that has been patterned with stencil, with photographs that also are photographs that I tend to make usually, but usually using patterns of other kinds. And in this case, I was creating my own pattern uh, using the repeated word for love in Arabic, which is hub. 
The other part of this exhibition is the lobby that lines the side of the museum, which is where I'll be presenting Flux, which focuses around the politics and even the poetics of what is wax print batik that is normally identified as African wax print or um, sometimes also controversially Dutch wax print. And finally is the newly commissioned work. In fact, Hope was also commissioned, which is in the lobby, but the work that I'm really excited about which I have been working on for two years is a culmination of quite a bit of research. Uh, The exhibition, the installation itself is called Najmal Ahmar, the Red Star. And in it, it sort of serves as a frame to the film, which is a multi-channel installation, uh, video installation of a film called Mahjar, which translates to migration and can also be um, the word for diaspora. And in that it's activated with black light and really kind of thinks about different sort of radical potential possible futures in particularly in regards to my native land Yemen and its relationship to the rest of the world, uh, namely my adopted land, the United States, and thinking about how in regards to the conflict that is happening there um, at the moment and that has been happening there has been considered the worst humanitarian crisis for the past six years, that Yemenis, we no longer really see that there's any mobility and therefore no potential future moving on a horizontal plane throughout the world, but the only potential that we now see is through the vertical, and that is through other worlds, other planets, other spaces, and other constellations. Incredible. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction to your show. So a common theme across your works is the breaking down and exchange of language as symbols. Could you tell us how you became interested in the use of language as a launching point for your work and how that transformed into using textiles as a form of language? I really appreciate this question um, regarding language, and indeed it has been a point of departure, most likely because my parents are both linguists. I grew up between Yemen, Turkey, Sarajevo in Bosnia, later on Vietnam, Wales, the United States, and Morocco, and have traveled extensively both by choice and not by choice. And I think this continual sort of movement from one space to the other, one of the most inherent things that we have is how do we communicate. Sometimes it's not only you know, verbally linguistic, but it is also through our culture in which I was particularly drawn to were a different type of language which manifested through patterns, patterns of textiles, moving into different spaces and really acknowledging how you are in a different place based on how, what people wear and particularly what were in those wares, what were in the clothes, what were in the ceramics, in the designs and the architecture and, you know, that you you're actually entering into different, not necessarily worlds, but different mindsets, imaginations, and creations. And I also think that while language, you know, kind of setting the stage and the fact that it can be very versatile, the way that we use the semantics and the the way that we use even thinking about what the word language means, um, what is its purpose, who is the audience, who is the person that's providing it. I also think about how it is not only used as, as this mode of communication, as this gift and as this tool to reach other cultures and places and to build these bridges, but it is also very much used as a weapon to alienate, isolate, exclude. And so 
so I've always been quite interested in how it can be quite duplicitous in this way. And I saw it really in regards to the work of my parents and moving into spaces, me particularly growing up in a household of, you know, seven languages and not necessarily being able to speak in all of them, but also acknowledging that there were mistranslations that were happening. And I see that also in the media growing up and being in the United States during September 11th, how it was actually manipulated, propagandized, and mishandled in order to further marginalize already marginalized communities. And in this regard, language sort of becomes abducted and then used as a weapon against those communities. So, you know, a perfect example, here we are at the Benton Museum and we're thinking about Pomona College, which is a school, which is a word that we have called madrasa. Between 2001 and 2004, in fact, I should probably say until now, is that the word madrasa, if you write it transliterated, M-A-D-R-A-S-A or R-A-S-S-A, depending on which way you'd like to do that, and you find it in Google, in fact, what you find is that um, you find images of young or adolescent young men um, who are almost in these um, fanatical extremist Muslim environments where they're taught essentially kind of giving off this impression that it's a training camp, a training camp for terrorists, really. And even thinking about, you know, them, what are they? They are students, right? But the word that we have for student is talib or taliba for male and female, respectively. Now, when you take this word for where the word taliban comes from, that's the only word essentially that we have for student. But of course, when heard to an, you know, uh, a non-Arabophone, you know, talib, taliba, taliban can be seen more as the word for terrorist. Madrasa, which is the only word that we have for school, can in fact be seen as a training camp. So if I say ana taliba fil madrasa, some a non-Arabophone might perhaps understand or hear that as I'm a terrorist in a terrorist training camp or in a in some sort of a religious school. But in fact, it's the only word that if I say ana taliba fil madrasa in Arabic, the only way that that translates to is I am a student in a school. And so, you know, other students who are hearing this could absolutely use this phrase, but depending on now who says it, how they say it, where they say it, and the context, or perhaps what clothes they're wearing, whether they would wear the hijab, this is what I mean of how language can be abducted. And so I saw a lot of these kind of drawing on all of these different ideas and experiences and thoughts. I think this is really sort of does become a really integral part of why, one, I became an artist, choosing to use the visual language as my main mode of communication with the world, but also in terms of the content of it and how I approach a lot of my research. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's so important to think about mistranslation of meaning when it comes to language. So now talking about the visual, you're actually using prints and patterns as a language. But for this show, I know that you've begun to create your own lexicon, fusing three different existing languages together. So what was that process like and how did that even come about? So yeah, I mean, I think that this third question really leads on to really what I was saying. I mean, first of all, I think this is also really quite applicable to the first, not to kind of digress from your question, but to the first piece and body of work that I'm presenting, which is actually at the entrance of the museum, which I think is relevant to really where we want to start thinking about how I'm using in this very same vein of how I'm talking about, you know, madrasa, talib, taliba, but also 
thinking about how those were propagandized, and it was propagandized through the media, through the Bush administration, and was even actually carried on through the Obama administration, and we see it's really sort of detrimental effects even today. And I think if there was one word as a sort of creating this intervention, using very similar means of media, but also the power of art and through museums, that, you know, if there is one word that I would really want for non-Arabophones to be able to recognize, understand, hear, and be able to spread, it would be the word hub, which is the word for love. Hub with with just a different sort of diacritic, which is essentially a vowel that's changed, is also the word for seed. And um, I think about something about nurturing and especially how social media is now... Um, developed very different from the early 2000s. I hope that this is also something that can sort of be taken. And um, there's also a space within the exit, within that wall where people can take selfies and um, hopefully spread this word through their own means. And then I think also, you know, when I'm talking about Mahjar and Najm al-Ahmar, which is, you know, the red star in the other room, I really think about, I think that's kind of a larger story of why I would create a language of the future. And, you know, when I think about why I started this whole project, it really begins from Conflict is More Profitable Than Peace, which is a film that's also going to be exhibited during the time that I'll be presenting at the Benton, but in fact it'll be virtual. It's more of the labor and the understanding of what is happening in Yemen. Why is it happening? And it was the research that I sort of compiled over two years creating this binder of trying to understand who are the victims, who are the culprits of the war in Yemen. And it's a 17-minute film that can be accessed and will be accessible during the entire time that this show will be up until June. And so I think after working on that, I really, you know, it's very different from my work. It looks like it's very evidentiary. It's a binder with black and white papers that have been compiled from lobbyists, lists, laws, weapons manufacturing companies, data. And so rather than what we're normally used to seeing, at least for people from West Asia, especially in light of, you know, circumstances that are and wars um, and catastrophes that are in Syria and Iraq and Palestine, um, but namely for me in this case, Yemen, how a lot of this information is in fact redacted. In this case, I really try to flip it on itself and highlight it. So there are a lot of these highlighted, but the entire document is in English. And that really says to who is the audience, who is it meant for? And I think a lot of work really for people who are coming from West Asia really think about making work for, as I put in quotes, the West and how to respond to specific catastrophes or crises that have in fact been imposed by the West. I really wanted to make a work in response after making conflict is more profitable than peace, a work that was for Yemenis by Yemenis. And I was awarded the Alan Sakula grant and with it I went to Brooklyn in New York and Detroit and Dearborn in Michigan, where I worked with Iman Ahmed in Brooklyn and Awad Ghazali, um, both in Dearborn, both of whom are from the Yemeni diaspora, and and tried to think about how do I move away from the current politics, the sort of dystopic present, into thinking about what is the possibility of thinking about our future, but also about 
thinking about our past in order to construct that future. And there were a lot of really beautiful things, kind of, I really wanted to step aside from religion, I wanted to step aside from politics, and I really wanted to think about what is it that ties us together specifically as Yemenis, not as Arabs, but as Yemenis. And with that, I mean, it was it became also important that this isn't only a story of Muslims, it's a story of Jews as well, of Yemeni Jews. It's our story of sun worshippers, it's Sabaeans as well, it's Himyarites. And, you know, we were all drawn by the story of the Red Star. The Red Star, which we call in Najm al-Ahmar, is something that, you know, Yemenis and in different tribes and children have been told, you know, since, for, since as long as we can remember. And it was something that we were all pretty shocked and surprised that we had in common. And um, even that we carried it on into the diaspora. And the story is that Queen Belqis, which is the queen of Sheba, so Seba is what we call Sheba, was actually Yemen, what is modern day Yemen and Southern Arabia, but also Ethiopia. It's believed that the throne of the queen of Sheba, so her name is not Sheba, her name was Belqis, who has been conveniently left out of any of the religious texts as the erasure had already started to happen that she was the most powerful woman of the land and was in and of herself a sort of sorceress who could also speak to animals and had this great power. And there was another great ruler who was in the north, King Solomon, who had heard of her power, and they communicated through a hoopoe bird. And he wanted to come and visit her, but her condition was that if he did visit her, that he must bring her a gift the size of her power. And so he does, and he gifts her the red star. Now, the red star, when I spoke to Awad and Iman, we sort of thought about this in this way of, I always thought it was the sun because she worshipped the sun, Belqis worshipped the sun. Iman had thought about it as Venus, and Awad thought about this as a mythical place, you know, this place that any star that we see is a star that connects all Yemenis in present day, but also across centuries, right, and across millennia. And we all looked at these same stars. And I think that that's quite poetic and beautiful when we sometimes look at the full moon to think that the moon looks so much closer to us than our families or friends on the other side of the world. But I was really interested of when I was in Yemen working on my first film called Al Qabila for my undergraduate, I found this article of three Yemeni men who in 1997, when NASA had sent up the Sojourner Pathfinder to Mars, that these three Yemeni men tried to sue NASA for invading their inherited land. And while The Guardian and the BBC and Al Thodi and CNN, which are articles that I feature in the film Mahjar, are very mocking about these three Yemenis, who are these three tribesmen who are claiming this land and how ridiculous it is, I really thought that it was actually quite poignant. And why is it so ridiculous when other colonizers have come to Yemen, for example, the British, and have come stolen our inherited, you know, our inheritance, like our pieces, our objects, our pieces of heritage, and then have housed them in their museums that are still there, which are absolutely inaccessible to us, not only because Yemenis are banned from these countries like the United States and the UK, but also the access into these museums that we have to pay for them. And so thinking about not only colonizing 
colonizing our land, but it's in fact, to me, colonizing our myths and colonizing even our stories. This becomes the premise of what is the possibility of us imagining this star. Now, I really ground it in Mars, but it could be any of the stars like Awad talks about. And... You know, when I think about the future, if I'm supposed to, if this ties me to 3,000 years ago, then in fact, knowing this story can catapult me to 3,000 years from now. When I think about how language has transformed from 3,000 years ago of ancient Sabaean to how it would transform as language evolves, as I discussed before, how it evolves into the future, then I think, well, how has actually Arabic singularly or Hebrew singularly Actually, how does it deserve our community from being collectively Yemeni? And so this kind of gave me the impetus to create a new language that I wouldn't say is necessarily invented, but draws on from the three languages that I find so beautiful and so much a part of who I am and of my roots, which is Hebrew, Arabic, and ancient Sabaean. And in the film, I actually speak it. And in the exhibition, you can actually experience it. So to me, this space becomes this letter from the future, which is actually what Michael Rakowitz, who has so generously contributed to the catalog and has been a really instrumental in providing, you know, mentorship and support during this process, is in fact of what he calls this sort of letter from the future. And um, in his own letter, it's really beautiful for talking and really drawing about these comparisons. When I say letter, it's in the catalog. These comparisons between what, that this is not only the story of Yemen, it can also be the story of Iraq and Syria but also the importance that it's only the story from Yemen and that Iraq too has its own stories and so on and so forth. But that just also showing this systemic repetition of erasure that occurs by Western powers. In this case, I'm namely mentioning the United States and Britain into these regions and what happens. But these, you know, thinking about how futurism and language actually, how through these ways we can reclaim them. That's incredible. Yeah. Thank you for speaking more on that. Um, So just to wrap things up, how do you see the themes from this exhibition continuing into your work in the future, if at all? Yeah. I mean, I think the themes that I've really employed for this exhibition are really ones that have been lingering not only in my practice, but also in my life. And they're, they're things that I've been exploring and that I continue to process through my art. I think it's also kind of created this, what I keep talking about in this podcast, even just using this term, this point of departure for yet other work, you know, rather than thinking about a specific work, meaning something, it really is a stepping stone to what is next. And so for the next exhibition or the next, I guess, body of work, I should really say, I was fortunate enough to be awarded the Roswell Artist Residency um, in Roswell, New Mexico, which ironically and interestingly enough, Alison Saar was also awarded several years back, uh, I believe in the 80s. And um, so Alison will also be exhibiting during the same time that I am at the Benton, which I'm beyond honored to be showing next to her. And so at Roswell, I'm, you know, I'll be there for one year. And the premise of this residency is really, it's considered a gift of time. And so I really do hope to expand a lot more on this new language, really driving more meaning, like sort 
sort of nuanced understanding of it, how it functions, the grammar, and how it can actually be utilized. But also I'm just really excited to kind of spend time stargazing and kind of thinking about how my work can be elevated both literally but also figuratively into something that is more celestial. Kind of thinking about also if considering that conflict is more profitable than peace as the first part with Mahjad as a second part and perhaps continuing on to make a trilogy of the third part, so another film. I've also been really thinking about, you know, this idea, this continued sense of textile making. And after spending quite a considerable time with master textile artists in different parts of the world for my previous series, where I spent a year with different masters in in 11 different regions, just seeing how the processes that they've made and that they use in sort of disseminating their language through pattern. I too have been always really fascinated with block printing and have already started creating blocks of the new invented language and how does that mean to no longer actually be using not only textile but sort of fibers and materials that could, you know, with sand and could be used in the future that are also patterned and thinking about also different materials in photography in what we print on and how that can also be sculptural. Certainly being the project series artist for the, is the 53rd artist, this has just been an incredibly, incredibly eye-opening, but also supportive environment in which I've been able to experiment and explore with a lot of things that objects, materials, and just having them manifest in very different ways that are really beyond photography, but also into installation, painting, moving image installation. And to that, I also have to say a huge thanks to Rebecca McGrew, Hannah Grossman, to, you know, the staff and everybody who is at the Benton Museum, Kimberly Varela, who I've had an exceptional collaboration with in making this book, who is brilliant and heads this graphic design atelier called Content Object in LA and who's designed the book. Also, of course, to Michael Rakowitz, who's been instrumental in thinking about how the the work is really relevant in this day and age. And of course, to my mentors, I had just recently graduated from CalArts doing my MFA. And I really had this great honor of working with people like Ashley Hunt, Mercedes Durami, Colleen Smith, EJ Hill, Christine Hill, and Ines Schaber. It's just been really wonderful. So, and thank you very much. And thank you to Pomona and also to the Benton just for having, you know, giving the space also for me to enter into classrooms and having these dialogues with students who I should say are artists rather, who really kind of helped make me think also a lot about my work. I think that's important as an artist to just kind of step away from what, you know, being in the art, but also in the work, but also step away and consider and and understand different perspectives, but also different narratives. So that's been a gift. So thank you so much. And thank you for taking the time to edit all the labor to do that and to produce such interesting questions and giving me the platform to present my work. So thank you. Thank you, Alia, so much for speaking with me today. As always, it's so wonderful and enlightening to hear you talk about your work. And I hope that I can make it out to the Benton soon sometime to see your exhibition up. For now, that's all the time we have on this episode of the Benton Podcast. That was Alia Ali speaking about her exhibition at the Pomona College Benton Museum of Art. 
which is currently up and will stay up through the spring of 2021. With that, I'm May, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Benton Museums podcast series, and I hope you tune in to some of our other episodes soon. Thank you, and see you next time. And that is our interview with Alia Ali. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you want further information on Ali's work, please head over to our website at pomona.edu slash museum slash exhibition slash 2020 slash alia-ali to check out all of the exhibition information there. It will include a bit more text, and Ali's video, Profit, is more profitable than peace. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm your host, Hannah Avalos, and this is Inside the Benton. This episode was produced by Hannah Avalos, Meiji, Rebecca McGrew, and Victoria Sancho-Lobos. This episode was written by Hannah Avalos and Meiji. This episode was edited by Hannah Avalos and Meiji. A special thanks to Meiji for all of her hard work on this episode. And a very special thanks to Alia Ali for her feature in this episode. A special thanks to Rebecca McGrew for all your collaborative input on this episode. And a special thanks to Jake Turner, class of 2021, for this originally composed music.